Hey, it's your death sentence. Uh, we're back. The hiatus is over. The light in your lives has returned. Um, the hiatus was about a month longer than I originally planned, but it, it has been broken. We're, we've done it. We're, we're back. Providing um, this episode records, this will be the first episode since December. Apart I... from the Patreon ones, which exist as well. I threatened Gareth to turn the show into Anime Corner if he didn't get back to work. Uh, because I did promise him that if he so much as fucking blinked, the whole show would be turned into Anime Corner. And I prepped some pretty shitty episodes, and he got his life right back in order. <laughs> yeah, that that's what we'll do. Although I did spend yesterday watching uh, Girls and Panzer, which was a delightful romp. I mean, we'll, we'll save that for the patrons, but um, just folks can't recommend Girls and Panzer enough. It's a, it's a sports movie about tanks and girls. It's and really... it takes place on an aircraft carrier. Exactly. That's all I want from stuff. And um, But, you know, we, we're back and we've got probably a, a book I've been looking out for for a long time now. Um, we're pretty much the Repeaters Books podcast at this point. Unless you know, they have their own one, which in case, which case we're not, because everything they put out is amazing. It's all solid gold, and we cover like half of it. Um, so this is uh, Matt Cahoon. He Hello. Is... There he is, folks. <laughs> sorry. No, no, that's fine. I, I, I don't need a flow. Just trod all over the uh, the intro. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, it's fine. I, I, I'll just go on without a flow of my ideas. They can just stop, I guess. Um. So he is the author of Egress. Uh, what's the subtitle? I don't have it in front of me. Uh, on Morning Melancholy and Mark Fisher. Damn right. And because we left this podcast in the year 2020, we have to talk about Mark Fisher all the time. Yep. At, which we like, which we are <laughs> very much into. Um, so, Matt, um, the story of this book kind of starts with you being a student of uh, Marks at Goldsmiths, right? Uh, yes, um, somewhat. Uh, it feels weird to... And I always feel uncomfortable calling myself a student of Marks because I feel like I very was um, hardly ever in a classroom. Um, I didn't actually take his course, but was sort of around and wanted to be sort of uh, in orbit of him. Um, and that was, yeah, unfortunately cut short quite suddenly. Um, so I think I have less claim to the student title as a lot of other people would do, but, um, that was the intention at least. Yeah. <laughs> okay. An attempted student. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, he, uh, he died in, I think it was January of 2017. Yes. Yeah. And uh, yeah, a massive loss for everyone. Um, and yeah, one of the really cool things about the book is it's not a, this is your first introduction to the ideas of Mark Fisher. I mean, that book will probably exist at some point, but this isn't quite it. Um, although it is, it would serve as a pretty decent introduction. Um, probably not as good as actually reading capitalist realism and weird and eerie. Yes. Um, yeah. But it's about 
well, not half and half, but um, a lot of the chapters start with your recollections of your life in and around the mourning process for Mark. Um, yeah, and that provides a really nice um, like framing device for how to how to think about this book and it's kind of a little like an emotional heft to it as well which i thought yeah. was, was a really cool idea to, to have that um what so this book started as a master's thesis right uh, how did you decide to turn it into a book and what were you kind of what were you trying to do with a book length thing of this nature um yeah the uh Turning it into a book was quite a arduous process, if not in terms of um, actually writing the thing, at least coming to terms with um, what that meant. Um, but it was the same process that I had when it was a master's dissertation. Um, I think the the, uh, the I guess when Mark died, there was this sense of protest on campus um uh that was quite diffuse everyone wanted to sort of just protest that moment in whatever way that was available to them um whether that was uh addressing the mental health crisis on campus or um trying to uh change the the sort of bureaucratic way that the institution had with dealing with um uh, grief or um Literally everything. I guess Mark, Mark in, you could kind of go through a list of everything that was sort of wrong with that moment, but Mark's death basically just opened up this huge space in the institution where a lot of personal um, action and, and thinking was kind of put into. So um, I guess what I'm trying to say is there was um, this relationship between Mark as a, as a person, as a human being, and Mark as a, as a teacher and as a colleague um it became immediately apparent that these two things didn't quite sit together after his death he kind of um is meant to be it's as if there was supposed to be um particular ways of dealing with the different losses of who mark was in terms of um yeah yeah uh, the, the different things that mark was to different people and so the master's dissertation was sort of something that i had to do as a student but um, it felt like if I was going to write something that had to be sort of within the academic fossil record of that year, um, something that no one would probably ever read again and would just be sat in the library, as sort of happens with dissertations, I just wanted mine to be about Mark um, uh, and wanted it to be about the how important and how central his death was to that year. Um, I wanted to sort of record that... Um, that earthquake, quite literally, in sort of geological terms, I wanted the the that 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 uh, event to be registered some way in their archives or whatever, um, and that was my version of the protest, I guess. But it was also a way of coming to terms with things, um, and I guess the book came out of the fact that when people read the dissertation that I was close with, whether it was lecturers or sort of fellow students there was a sense that there other people thought that this thing should see the light of day that it shouldn't just um 
be relegated to the institution. It should also reach outside of it. Um, so I spent a good two years trying to figure out how to do that. Um, and yeah, the book just sort of emerged quite quickly, really. The back, the backbone was there as a dissertation, and I just extended it um, without really thinking about it. Um, and I kind of surprised myself just how much, how many, it's just in terms of word count, like how much I actually managed to extend it into something. Um, and now it's the whole process is just a bit of a blur. But I guess that's the vague trajectory. It was an attempt to try and continue that protest. And whether it will have that um, impact once it's out remains to be seen. But that's the hope anyway. I, I had this praise for the book uh, prepped before uh, I knew. W once more, uh, Gareth did not tell me that you were the author of the book, which has happened more than once. <laughs> it's it's a fun surprise, and I'm like, okay, well, okay, this, this shifts some of the lens of this stuff. But um, he probably implied it. I just didn't I, pick up on it because I think him. it was implicit. Um, <laughs> but so. I bring that up because I, I promised that I had this prep to, to say before I found out that, that you were actually the author, that we were just going to be talking about it. Um, I greatly appreciated how this feels like um, an implicit response to some criticism that I've seen in left space of Mark Fisher as perhaps being like leftists are quite wary, um, perhaps not unduly so, of people being um, egocentric and centering their name over the work. And this feels like a deliberate slap to that notion, at least as applied to Mark, as you extend his thoughts uh, d both deeply backwards into the, the vast body of critical theory and then also offer avenues forward, which I which I found really refreshing because it's it's obviously annoying to hear people say that about Mark Fisher, where it's like, I don't know how you can read his work and not think that it's playful in the good way, like it's meant to generate thought, not be a dead end of thought. But yeah. you this is like a book not by Mark Fisher. It's a book of scholarship engaging with his thoughts that I can now point to for people and be like, then what's this motherfucker? Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's great. Um, well, thank you for that. But that's, I mean, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's, uh, well, I can't say that that was the intended response, but I mean, that's, a, that's amazing. <laughs> that's an amazing response to have. That's, uh, yeah, that's, that's part of the whole thing, I guess. It's now, um, those are the questions that I have going forwards. It's not really an, a, a finished project because now there's this whole sense of what this is going to do to Mark's work um, uh, and discussions around it that I have my own opinions on, but I can't really predict. So uh, that's uh, we'll have to see what happens when uh, people like yourself, if they do do that, um, <laughs> and what comes back in my face as a result. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so let's just start with um, like getting out, out a bit of the themes of it. So let's start with the title, because that's obviously the most important. What does the term egress mean in kind of Mark Fisher's body of work? Um, yeah, it's. I think that the interesting thing for egress is that it's actually a sort of underexplored term. It only appears once in The Weird and the Eerie, but it seems like it's such an uncommon phrase to use that I'd never really, I'd never heard of it before. And now since um, 
becoming kind of more aware of it. I'm uh, aware of it having this um, a resonance in sort of um, military uh, jargon, I guess. Um, yeah, that's kind of the only place I've heard of it is like a, a fancy way of saying leave. Yeah, um, which I wasn't aware of before having read the book. Uh, before the, the book, I sort of did that whole, um, you know, we can go into Google and you can search a word and see like its prevalence in media mm. over time. And people will do it for, I don't know. Anyway, um, I can't think of examples off the top of my head. I put myself into a box there. But uh, so I did it with egress. Um, and the only, uh, the, the prevalent examples before the sort of 20th century were all to do with either um, uh, astronomy um, in terms of being used uh, regarding planets. Um, so like the, the, the end of an eclipse being like an egress or even um, uh, in nautical terms. So an egress being like the, uh, um, once something has been submersed, when it, li- when it is no longer submersed, it egresses. Um, and I found both of those really interesting because that seemed to me to have an extra layer of sort of Lovecraftian um, uh, sentiment to it, this sort mm. of... Uh, relationship between the cosmos and the deep oceans um and then yeah more recently i'm aware that it's this sort of military thing also so um uh and i guess that it became fascinating for us at goldsmiths because i should stress that it wasn't just a word that i picked out but was um uh it was a a a phrase that a group of us adopted in 2017 at goldsmiths when we started putting together uh, events around Mark's work and we called ourselves the egress crew um uh and I think it, I, it just had this resonance of um in terms of our situation um so it was this uh sense of uh Mark leaving but also the, the uh, a pre- preparation for our own leaving of the university being on just a single year master's degree um and a sense of just leaving there was this world before mark's death that everyone was quite comfortable in and then it was just suddenly we were thrust into this new world that we kind of couldn't quite figure out which i guess is just part of the grieving process but there was that sense of egress too is that the whether we liked it or not we were leaving some some prior existence and moving into a new one and all of these different um um understandings of that word kind of got folded together um and in the book i kind of explore that a bit particularly around um yeah an argument of whether mark chose that word rather than exit um because exit had been used uh more famously by someone like nick land and if he was trying to um step away from that um or if he just liked it because it was a a, a novel but I guess that that plethora of questions around it is sort of what made it such an anchor for us, um, which doesn't really answer your question. But no, I guess no. that's that's uh, no, that's kind good. of the point of it. I think that there was, uh, yeah. it, it, I think, yeah, mm. the point that it was, um, it just became this anchor, uh, an unfamiliar anchor, and that was its um, uh, appeal. I like the the strong resonance that it has with lines of flight in um, in obviously the Lusian uh theory it it feels like it builds in an additive way on that rather than just a a recycling of the same thought 
Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely was a part of it too. Um, and I guess that's part of the the stakes of it of using it in a way of um, collating that sort of high theoretical sense with this strangely personal resonance and how the two can be related if they can be related um yeah what 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 that can what thinking of it what a word like that and thinking of it in in both those terms what it can do to the word and your responses to that word it actually ties into something that you mentioned in the opening of um the the spinozan uh approach to like like cold rationality as being pseudo-psychedelic in function because of how a logical breakage can push us into a position that like mere lived experience would not necessarily have taken us in this. Yeah. It, it becomes this, uh, and in doing so, like it underscores a lot of what I think, uh, some of the more personal themes of the book are, uh, at least from what I gathered of that, like, Again, sort of uh, this is perhaps me being pithy and uh, putting my own uh, my own frustrations about things in, into <laughs> your book. But um, running into people who seem to view that philosophy is something that um, certain types do to like waste their time or to think like think of themselves as high and mighty or something. When like it's a very personal thing, like it, it lives and breathes and interpolates with real personal life. And so yeah. having that that bridging element of like there is a smooth continuum between real regular life in and around Mark Fisher as a real living person who, who actually was lost and that people actually felt grief for um, like real human grief and these theoretical concepts. Like it's not, it's not some weird breakage that doesn't, in discontinuity there's this smooth continuum between the two spaces yeah and you kind of bring that up quite early on with the idea of uh, left pessimism and just like how the the experience of grief for this world that never was is built into the left you it's kind of a cliche of uh, leftists being sad for, because uh, i don't know soviet union fell or something <laughs> but um yeah it, it's it is a a key thing of being on the left is, you know, your all the revolutions failed. Everything's kind of getting worse every day. It's grief is very much built into it. Yeah. Um, I always think of it in terms of, um, I don't know how far this stereotype carries, but um, I always remember people that I knew that went into studying psychiatry um there was always a sense that those are the people that that would benefit from psychiatry most and not in a sort of dismissive sense but like that that's kind of the that almost as if that drive is a requirement right that it's, that it's actually a really good reason to go and do it in the sense that um you can see the the um you want to learn about this thing because it will it will benefit yourself and then you put that into practice by helping other people in the process and I feel like that that's, I feel like philosophy is sort of a similar thing, right? If you have that, you, you, you're so many people that are interested in philosophy now and even political philosophy, political theory may be, feel more alienated than most other people would. But I guess it's, it uh, becomes a, a sort of personal salve. Um, but what you do with it or what you should do with it is, you know, being able to share 
the answers that you discover whilst on that journey um, so that other people can yeah benefit. Um, I feel like that's something that Mark did um, uh, really, really well, particularly in, um, you know, this sense of uh, that the book is, 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 is very personal um, and then extends that outwards into theoretical, theoretical conversations. Um, that's, uh, that wasn't necessarily a conscious choice, but it's uh, something that it's, it's, that's Mark's most explicit influence on my own writing as someone that's been reading him for, quite a few years it's asked what i always admired about mark's writing the most that he could write something that was so um blisteringly personal and then connect it to um a sort of continuum yeah as you say a continuum of um of just human emotions and capitalist politics and show how this very singular personal island that you might feel like alienated person is connected to a um, a wider movement or could be or you know um these other impersonal infrastructures. Yeah, damn, damn right. Um, so we'll come up to about halfway. So we'll leave that there and go into some other stuff later because we got to play play a little music for you guys. Um, we've got like a, a backlog of like two months of music we haven't played, but we're just going to forge ahead, play new releases. So Langdon, do you want to talk about Cult of Fire? Uh, yeah, so... Um... Cult of Fire are uh, actually a brief narrative. So I have a, a, a monthly column over at uh, Consequence of Sound uh, called Mining Metal. Our original title for it was Thunder Underground, which is an Ozzy Osbourne song and a much better title. But apparently <laughs> there's a podcast with that. So we had to go for, we let the editor pick at that point because we were both, our hearts were set on it. We're like, Thunder Underground, this is lit. And then he's like, no. <laughs> we're like, fuck. Um, <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> um but so write about a whole bunch of underground metal there. I'm not bringing this up as a plug, but uh, trust me. So you do research for the bands that you're doing because we all love extreme metal here. I'm I'm speaking for uh, Mr. Calhoun. Uh, right now, he honorarily loves extreme metal, even if he doesn't actually. <laughs> I do. Yours, yeah. Yeah, good. It's all good. Ba based um, on the, the logo on your uh, Xenogothic website, um, <laughs> yeah. kind of assume maybe. Yes. Yeah, we, I've 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 been a follower on um, on Twitter for a while, and Twitter feed's fucking great. So I I the uh, the Baphomet figure kind of is a tip. Um, but uh, so the, the the nasty problem is you're like, oh, I want to write about this band. One second you open up a new tab, you type in the name of the band, you hit space, you type Nazi, you hit enter, and you just hope that you don't find anything. Um, and sometimes you do. Uh, so I had like the day that I was going to hand in my draft for the most up most recent upcoming one. Um, turns out that the front man of the group Raspberry Bulbs um, like owns and sells NS records. He's played NS covers of NS bands in Bone All, which is another band that oh, he's shit. in. So I was like, "Fuck, okay, I have to I have to cancel this." Um, <laughs> so I was like, "Fuck, I have a gap." And then all of a sudden, uh, my co-writer Joseph Schaefer. Uh, just sends me a message. He's like, oh, Cult of Fire just surprise released two full-length albums. And I was like, fuck, there <laughs> we go, baby. <laughs> when God uh, uh, makes one door a Nazi, he opens a window. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, That's so, the title. Um, yeah, so 
I, I just had it thrust into my lap. Um, they're they're a dumbly good band, um, led by this guy named Vlad. Um, that he's a a Western practicing Hindu. Um, and he he's actually very conversant about like so Hinduism famously doesn't exactly have an evangelical mode. So like converting to Hinduism isn't exactly something you can really do um, in a lot of Hindu communities, at least. But he uh, he's had community er, like conversations with faith leaders. He's very sincere about it. It's not like so the Hindu imagery on their records um, isn't some incidental thing that he's doing for exotic flair. He's like, that's that's my actual faith. That's like he goes and sees a guru. He does um, ascetic meditation, things like that. And the records have the same, like, transcendentalist spiritual heft that, say, satanic or luciferic black metal records have, but pointed towards Hinduism. Um, and its own meditations on death consciousness and uh, the eruptive uh, potentialities of that, and, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. But because it's pointed towards Hinduism and it doesn't necessarily have the same baggage that um satanism and luciferic practice can sometimes have you know look looking at you uh like radical individualists who just turn fascist because apparently being a fascist is individualist or whatever um yes it's just like it's, it's wicked good music too like mm. it's it's not just that you read the lyrics and you're like oh nice it's 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 fucking gorgeous oh yeah like especially um the record buddha of the two that came out yesterday and we're recording this on a saturday i don't know when it's going up but um yeah so like i highly recommend we play either buddha 4 or buddha 5 those are just fucking phenomenal okay oh the, the record is called nirvana no oh, nirvana yeah okay yeah. i'm stupid yeah just to make it really difficult for to google <laughs> so um buddha 4 i'm gonna it's got, uh, it's yeah, got a really beautiful uh, mandala on the cover. Uh, so yeah, we'll we'll just uh, drop in Buddha Four by Cult of Fire. Uh, yeah, these guys are cool. These guys, they, and they he's got a really awesome stage thing. I'm guessing that's Vlad there with his cape, with his skulls around his neck like Kali, and some scythes. Like liking that. So yeah, here's Cult of Fire. <laughs>
So that was Cult of Fire doing Buddha number four off Nirvana. Um, yeah, they're so cool. Love these guys. Um, we're still here with Matt Cahoon, the author of Egress. Did I get that right wrong again? What's that? Did I get that wrong? No. Oh, good. I thought you were correct. No, so I was just, I was just saying hello in the, in oh, the gap again. Just ruining your flow. As, as yeah, um, apparently. That's <laughs> uh, your thing. No. Uh, yes. So, yeah, Egress, Morning Melaconium, uh, Mark Fisher and stuff um, on repeat books. So uh, Langdon mentioned people turning out to be fascists uh, before the, the gap. So um, a big presence, well, not, not a huge presence in the book. There's, there's a lot of different theorists from Bataille to uh, Blanchard to, uh, to Luz Guattari. But a, a big one, because he knew Mark Fisher personally, is Nick Land. Yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, it can hit it collectively everyone going that guy. <laughs> My <laughs> physical pain has reached a peak. <laughs> yeah. I've made you get up early in the morning and listen to talking about Nick Land now. So um, I actually had a conversation about Nick Land yesterday too. Oh dear, this is a bad time. He lives uh, rent free in so many of our minds. <laughs> yeah. I think he lives rent free because Pete Thiel pays his rent. <laughs> but um, but uh, enough about the the huge conspiracy by billionaires to control the world through fascism and monarchism, which is totally real and it's terrifying. Uh, um, so yeah, for those of you, for those out there who didn't go. Uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, who is Nick Land? How is he connected to Mark Fisher? And how is how does Nick Land's bizarro speed freak out ideas connect to Mark Fisher's good and nice ideas? <laughs> um, okay, I guess Nick and Mark had their initial meeting at the University of Warwick, uh, where Nick was a... Um, I'm going to have to see if I can remember the biography here, but... Um, Nick was a, a lecturer, senior lecturer on the um, continental in the continental philosophy department at University of Warwick, which is a it was and still remains a pretty prestigious um, philosophy department in the UK. Um, and Mark arrived there from Birmingham, so Mark was originally on the uh, cultural studies department there. Uh, I think he was doing his PhD at that by that point. It might have just been his MA. Um, but he was studying there with Sadie Plant, who is now most famous for her book, uh, Zeros and Ones, which um, really like raised her profile in the end of the 90s. Um, I'm pretty sure there's a Guardian article about her somewhere as like this radical new cybernetic feminist who's about to take over the world. Um but I think that the, the relationship that the cultural studies crew was having with Birmingham wasn't, they weren't feeling it was that productive. So there was this sort of mass exodus that when Sadie moved to Warwick, a lot of her students followed her and Mark was one of them. And together with, uh, they sort of joined forces, Sadie and Nick, Mark and a bunch of other people. And um, they formed the Cybernetic Culture Research Unit as a sort of 
anarcho-para-academic um, culture production unit, essentially. Um, and the mythos from um, from those activities is sort of still permeates a lot of online culture today. And so Nick was, I think, this this huge figure there who really captivated so many different people. Um, and it's interesting to think about this, I guess, yeah, so Nick's obviously very infamous now for um, a lot of what he's written and a lot of his Twitter activity. But as a lecturer, um, I think his influence still permeates. And a lot of the people that I've personally met um, over the, the last few years, particularly Mark, but other people that were associated with the CCIU and that time, a lot of them who are now um, were or still are teaching at the um, at university, uh, Goldsmiths University here in London, um, where I did my MA, um, they all still share this real enamorment with how Nick was... Um, was able to communicate ideas to people and his his just sheer skill as a his pedagogic skill which hasn't d diminished um and so i think that's the it, it, it's strange to and also unfortunate in a lot of ways to have to talk about mark and nick um together but in a way i think that if we're going to address anything all the strengths of mark's thoughts particularly his um his great success and his um the sense that he was adored as a teacher by his students and adored his students in turn um i think his 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 appreciation of what teaching could do came from his initial experiences with land um and that's yeah that influence is not just from mark but other people too and i think that that still um perpetuates and so Nick Land is probably most famous for accelerationism. He's not the only accellerationist. There's, there's Stefan Deleuze could tell you about that. And lots of uh, people on the on the left have dabbled in it too. And I think at one point Mark Fisher talks about acceleration, says something along the lines of like Marxism's accelerationism at heart. So like yes. That. And um, so how did... Mark Fisher touch on accelerationism in his work. Is he is he an accelerationist? Does he have a take on it? Uh, I mean, absolutely. Um, the The term accelerationism was first used by um, a writer called Benjamin Noyes um, in a book. I think it's called Malayan Velocities, something along those lines. Um, and it was used as a derogatory term for um, this sort of kind of academic that he saw emerging um, that was concerned with, I don't know, certain things. And apparently it was Mark himself who saw that phrase and decided to reappropriate it and own it. Um, so in some ways, Mark was the original accelerationist um, who, you know, adopted that name proudly, um, which is quite a common habit actually i think you could say the same oddly about nick land i think the first time that nick used the term neo-reactionary was as a critique and then when he started to be called one he embraced it so there's this sort of um tendency in a lot of this thinking that is to yeah try and um 
make good on the on the the mean names that your enemies call you. Um, but yeah, Mark's uh, Mark's relationship to accelerationism was is complex, and that sort of anecdote of, of Mark being the first to use that phrase, which is initially an insult, kind of explains a lot of his relationship to it as a quite unruly field. I think he's probably more responsible than anyone for confusing what it was meant to be because he, you know, it, it changed so frequently. But um, I think essentially my understanding of accelerationism is that it is a, a comment on how technological accelerationism and technological process, progress rather, how that affects the human subject under capitalism. Um which, yeah, that's the thing. That's why you can call Karl Marx an accelerationist. He, um, he, capital is, if anything, is is a you know, as a critique of political economy, as is its subtitle, is a is a critique of um, the effect of capitalist logics on the labor force. Um, and accelerationism today doesn't do, really do anything different. What it what it what it thinks of the the different outcomes of that observed process is a different matter um whether that will completely dissolve the human subject as we know it that's something that some people might cheer like land might cheer that and um see that as a, an exciting uh turn of events people like mark i think were more cautious about what that would mean to the people that are already suffering under capitalism and so he sort of didn't want to simply embrace that chaos but um, try and mitigate it so it didn't just um, uh, overwhelmingly affect um, the poorest amongst us. And that's the split that we now know as sort of being the left and right accelerationism. And it's split off into different areas still, but I feel that, like the, the core, which Mark wrote a, a lot about in um, not necessarily his, his most widely read works, but in lots of articles, remains the... Uh, the concern with uh, a human subject that is continuing to mutate under capitalist forces. And uh, Langdon, weren't you going to talk about accelerationism as well? Uh, <laughs> uh, so, um, so, like, so, like you were saying, accelerationism is branched into a bunch of different subcategories. And if you are plugged into um, the Twitter sphere where a lot of these thoughts are being fired at, I mean, obviously there's, there's academic papers, but there's a lot of like very active discussion, like, like people actually talking about the ideas very frequently. You can also find it on Facebook. That's the bad spot. Don't go there. Um, but <laughs> uh, because it's mostly just a bunch of like burnt out ex academics on Facebook posting, honestly, some pretty smart stuff. But you, there's that tinge of bitterness where you're like, I'm not sure if I should listen to you. But um, the the term itself, unfortunately, has as much as it has an inward facing um, polyphony, it outwardly facing has been effectively monopolized by Nick Land. When people hear it from outside of that space, they don't tend to think of the positivist. Um, mitigated kinds of acceleration uh, uh, that someone like Mark Fisher was interested in of like, this can happen, but we shouldn't necessarily, you don't co-sign any kind of elemental force, but like you wouldn't say that like 
to draw a weird parallel. You wouldn't say that like gravity has a moral goodness to it. That's weird. Um, and so likewise, the tendency towards acceleration, at least in that view, isn't necessarily a good or bad thing. It's it's totally unmarked, and we can we can do things about that. Meanwhile, uh, Nick Land even terms his current thoughts as hyper racism, um, which I wish I was making that up. Um, but uh, it, yeah, he's, that guy. The 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 frustrating thing about that um, of Nick Land in specific is if you follow his early career, he was an incredibly good um, Deleuzian theorist for for a long stretch. He was interp uh, he was building off of Deleuze's um, sort of uh, critical salvaging of Nietzsche because again, for those who were less plugged into philosophy stuff. Nietzsche went through like almost a century of being persona non grata within the um, world of philosophy, mostly due to people deliberately poorly uh, extending his ideas. Like, like members of the Nazi party were fond of some of his ideas, but required either heavily truncating other elements of his thought or taking the specific edits that his sister, who was an anti-Semitic eugenicist, um, did posthumously to his work. Uh, and Deleuze was one of the people who helped defang that and go like, no, if we actually look at the texts, it's not. It is um, remarkably ethically unmarked, but just because it's unmarked doesn't mean we can't mark it. Like, you're allowed to do that. You still have agency. Um, and Nick Lamp extended a lot of those thoughts and made a lot of really powerful work. And that's when you see certain people, even especially Mark Fisher, talking about the positive impact of Nick Land, that's the Nick Land that those types are remembering. This sort of like young and energetic and very fruitful thinker who then, th there's a lot of guesses as to what happened to his brain. Um, speed, definitely. Uh, that cocaine. Um, these, are, these are some thoughts that are probably a little bit accurate. But... Um, Getting getting a name for himself didn't likely didn't help either. That like when it starts being that people want to hear what you're saying without necessarily wanting to critically engage with what you're saying, that seemed to um if anything, uh the progression of Nick Land's career and the uh progressive worsening of his thoughts is a uh is a start underscoring of why the somewhat mitigating and uh, triage-focused elements of acceleration that Mark Fisher was interested in, why those are valid. It's like, you don't want to... Um, one of Nick Land's big thoughts is that uh, capital is the rapid deterritorializer and does so with the harshest rapidity. Like, there's, there's nothing that's going to subtract out um, humanity or bring us to imminence more than capital, which then immediately makes him turn around and go, that means the biggest capitalist is the most philosophically pleasing. Peter Thiel, please let me lick your boots. Um, <laughs> it's very frustrating, um, especially because there are those other fruitful, interesting, powerful thoughts embedded within this whole schema that he helped um, that he helped generate. And that's uh, one of the reasons I think that certain people on the left love Mark Fisher as much as we do is it feel, 
it feels like someone against the will of Nick Land going like, no, I'm going to pull your good, not shitty ideas out of you, whether you want me to or not. You want to just be <laughs> racist online, but I'm going to remind people that you used to not be racist. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, the, the groan is because it's a very complex and like, especially if you followed his career, this has been a process um, that Nick Land has been undergoing for about a decade now. Because, like, it was a big deal when Fanged Naumana dropped. Like, that that was a big moment. Um, not just because the book itself was powerful, but, like, people were paying attention. Like, it wasn't just an academic event. Like, people outside of academia suddenly were interested in these thoughts that, up until that point, it felt like, unless you were in undergrad or a graduate program or phd like you you wouldn't you wouldn't be talking about these things to just some random person and then all of a sudden you were and then his brain broke like and it broke in real time because he has a twitter account that he uses all the time so you could just literally watch him go mad mm -hmm. <laughs> yep oh nick lad but uh i should tag him into this episode i would describe <laughs> it as spiritually upsetting <laughs> oh, good. Well, I feel well, like the there's there's kind of this, I guess there's this, there's a thread that I see as we're talking about initially talking about accelerationism and the sort of the the frustration that can come with with someone like Land. And I almost feel like since what we've just listened to in terms of the song you played, I feel like a lot of people that like metal also like this philosophical debates around accelerationism because they're essentially the same thing. Um, and they're filled with the same sorts of rough edges and slightly darker corners. Um, I, I, I wouldn't go so far as saying that Nick Land like this scene's vague, but <laughs> there's a there's 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 some resonance there. I think in the sense that you emerge from this real this cultural, at least talking about the sort of true Norwegian black metal scene, you emerge from this really intense culturally productive moment where essentially what you're what those teenagers are rebelling against is this um is a is as is an outwardly conservative moralizing society and also this this not just a return to nature in a nationalist sense but the sense that nature itself is sort of this well i mean that is what fang numina is fang numina is this sense that nature nature can be a bitch and you can't necessarily um uh do anything about that it's like a the, the it, it's a it, it will bite your head off and you're also, you know, we as humans are a part of that. So there's this certain nihilism of just being a part of nature that I think a lot of metal explores in a really interesting ways. And accelerationism is sort of the same sort of thing. It's the accelerationism is sort of the blast beat undercurrent, the 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 ever the ever intensifying nature of metal as a music genre. Um is sort of yeah analogous to this ever intensifying, ever um speeding up sense of um capitalist circuitry and the the political um positions that you get within that are as vast as they are with metal as well mm. but the yeah, difficulty becomes be in that um yeah absolutely um but i feel like that the uh the, the addressing someone like land in these conversations becomes almost as uh Again, it's the same sense of like, how can you still be a metal fan when you've got someone like Varg a part of your scene? Mm. 
And I feel like it's uh, whether you want to defend the influence of something like Burzum or the true Norwegian scene in general, that's kind of a subjective position. But I feel like culturally speaking, you kind of have to acknowledge that it exists to to ignore the fact that it's there. Just It's just as, it's, it's a sort of act of repression that that very scene was trying to resist. And There's I feel also... like that. No, oh, no, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I, 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 there's also this, um, this component that can frustrate a lot of people from outside of the world of critical theory and like just 20th and 21st century theorization in general, which is that um, regardless of how empiricists and the children of empiricists, so the structuralists and things like that, felt about Nietzsche's comments, he was still validated in the sense that we did broadly reach a, a breakage of pure philosophy from uh, moral and ethical bounds. They at right. least, that the tools of critical theory are unmarked because they're tools. They're like a hammer or a screwdriver or a wrench. Um, now, that doesn't mean that we've stopped talking about what should we do with them. Like, obviously, what can we do and what should we do are both important discussions, but they're different discussions. And that's that's where I think the um some of the reclaiming aspect of because like like a lot of people I encountered Mark Fisher first through reading things like um the early object oriented ontology stuff and speculative realism and stuff like that and he was just in and around those spaces um because those were they seemed like fruitful spaces and some people yeah. took them in directions that a lot of people have objection to, myself included. But that doesn't mean that they weren't fruitful because what you're pursuing is, it's sort of like um, being a farmer or a tool maker. You don't know how useful something's going to be until you produce it and you see what it, can, what it can do. And then you ask yourself, of what it can do, what will I do with this? Or maybe I can make it do something else. And so I agree with you that sometimes people have they extend their frustration to someone did something with this tool that I no longer like to now the tool itself is bad. And it's right, like, yeah, the, the hammer can both build or kill somebody. That's not, it's, it's what the person wielding the hammer, that's, that's the person you should interrogate, not necessarily the hammer itself. And so Mark Fisher is one of the key, like he's become a key name because it's someone that we can all point to who has a lot of sort of, undeniably leftist work. The leftist laudits and credentials behind it are sort of unimpeachable. And you can point to it and go, this is what a lot of us were thinking when we got interested in these thoughts. This is the kind of directionality that we all sort of implicitly felt. And he put it towards first, and he put it towards, in a lot of ways, better than a lot of other people around him at the time. And, like, he can... It's it's like the equivalent of um, within the black metal scene, as much as we have Varg, we also have the guys from Enslaved also went to the same uh, record shop that black metal was born out of. But they're all pure hearted prog rock and dads. Um, yeah. Likewise, we have like Aboth and Isan, um, you know, going off in different directions, not committing any uh, not being racist, not committing any murders. Um, right. So like that we will pick a certain figure because we implicitly already don't like something and want to find some justifiable way to dismiss it rather than acknowledging that even in those moments of 
intense controversy, there's still a polyphony and there's still, uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to do it. I'm going to name check your point, name check your book. Uh, it's the delusing thing of flights of, uh, lines of flight or, or, uh, paths of egress. Like we still have these multiple paths that we can take that we even see being taken. And so it feels very disingenuous when someone looks at something, purely looks at something like, um, all of accelerationism or all of 21st century thought inspired even loosely by land and goes, it's just the racists. Right. It's like they're there. We can't, we can't deny that they're there. That would be shitty disingenuous, but you know, we have these other people like Eugene Thacker talk to them a lot. Is anyone going to come for Eugene Thacker's <laughs> head? No, that's stupid. Like, <laughs> but I guess that's it, right? It's the, I think the the thing that you said about, um, uh, it's not the it's not the tool, but it, you could take the person that uses it, and that's what I feel like is the that's that is the driving force of accelerationism. That's the subject that I mean, like uh, that. I think that's the comment that people have made in terms of the um, the Christchurch shooter who name checked accelerationism in his manifesto. He didn't realize that he was precisely the subject that that accelerationism was there to critique this sense of uh, of how you can have all this chaos going on around you, and you somehow have this a violent ego emerge out of that you're the you're the opposite of what this thing is trying you're you're you are precisely what is the the focus of the critique and it's the same thing with someone like yeah these are the these are black metal figures or metal more generally where you have this um this obliterative aesthetic this 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 genre that is just smashing literally smashing out any sense of subjective authority out of like a like a, a worldly being, like you know, it's it's a, it's a genre that channels this sort of like cosmic dissonance into the the figure of the musician. And if you can embody that and come out of it with an ego as large as someone like Varg, you've done it wrong. You're you're it's it's it's. I think that, that if you're if yeah, if something that is meant to be ego obliterating, and you end up the opposite way, you've taken a misstep. But that's the thing that should be addressed, right? The fact that that sense of ego obliteration actually becomes a, a really important vector for collective action. Like I love metal scenes because of that sense of belonging that you get in these spaces is far more wholesome than I've experienced anywhere else. And I think that's something that Mark knew also, that you can have this... Mark saw himself as a goth through and through, um, and despite having what is like an aesthetically nihilistic and pessimistic view on the world, he was also a perennial optimist who loved being around and working with people. And those two things that I think people that are within these scenes know implicitly, um, those two things don't cancel each other out. I mean, we have the, the euphoric aspect of nihilism that gets foreshortened by a lot of people. Um, ironically, it underscores a lot of the point people make about the Lovecraftian element of it. Of And it, it, you can draw back before, uh, before Lovecraft. I mean, Nietzsche explicitly talked about, like, your approach to these kinds of consuming nihilisms can fuck you up in the bad way, or they can be liberatory. Um, and it's very hard to walk back from either one of those because there seems to be like a splitting of the river. Like you can swim as hard as you can to get up the river and go down the other path, but it takes a lot of very deliberate effort that most people aren't going to do. Um, 
uh, this is also kind of the thesis of um, uh, Mark Fisher's uh, The Weird and the Eerie, of that there, there's this breakage point that comes um, from a deeply nihilistic viewpoint that, for some, becomes this euphoric and deeply optimistic uh, point of radical freedom that you can choose you can choose to revoke certain things. Um, and uh, that's, that's what you're mentioning, sort of like the drive towards collective action or the drive towards um, communal approaches to thwarting injustice because you have this... Uh, eradicating urges tend to not be very picky about what they're eradicating. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, some, and sometimes they eradicate shit that honestly should never have been there. Um, and you're like, oh, this is great. And other times the exact same methodology eats away at other things first and you get someone who gets worsened because of it. And there, there's unfortunately, at least right now, it doesn't seem that any of us know exactly the best way to deploy them to get the kinds of, to like get consistent results of like, if I table say like picking random people like Bataille or Sioran to someone can mm. I guarantee what what can I imagine I'm gonna get out of them? And it doesn't seem that it's consistent person to person. It seems like you can give, you know, a hundred people the exact same background, the exact same set of philosophical thoughts, and a random distribution of them will turn fash and the others will become commies. Right. <laughs> yeah. Which is the tension, right? Like the that's what both of those ideologies share. And that's something that I've seen very recently in terms of um, people shifting from within this sort of acceleration sphere, um, very publicly shifting from being on the left to apparently being on the right. But I think that it comes down to both fascism and communism have a strong sense of belonging. Um, and the, 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 uh, the, the way that the, that sense of belonging is, is framed can be quite attractive to certain people. Um, which I guess is that's the that's the need for vigilance, right? That the you can that I think and I think Mark knew that especially that he wanted to uh, affirm a desire for communism because desire just on its own can go anywhere, um, and capitalism likes to think it has the monopoly on shaping our desires, but politics as a as a sphere is kind of illustrated to us that someone who has a desire for a, pol a political belonging can just as easily become a communist as a fascist and realizing how, what the um, how that happens is kind of part of how we can move forwards yeah um so that seems a a very nice place to to leave it uh so the, the book is out uh in the middle of march uh, 10th of march 10th of march yeah 10th of march it's on repeater books who are who was was uh, one of the two book um, publishing companies that Mark Fisher founded? The other one being Zero Books, um, well, co-founded, whatever. But um, yeah, Repeater Books is like just incredible publisher. Everything they've put out has yeah. been golden, just really good. Uh, Zero Books, well, table that for another day. <laughs> um, they but, they had so, a turn. They had, they had, they had a they had a heel turn. That's how I would describe it. Wrestling terminology comes to save the day. Oh, yeah. We all yeah. we all we know we talk a lot about heel turns today. That's um, uh, yeah. There's some synchronicity there. But, well, uh, it's, again, it's it's a powerful it's a powerful modal tool. 
professional mm. wrestling has given us a great way to uh, observe spectacle. Yeah, I didn't believe this at first, but uh, doing this podcast has convinced me that <laughs> professional wrestling terminology is um, is very helpful when thinking about the world. Mm. It was uh, it was really funny when certain philosophy types um, and just people in philosophy circles, because there's a lot more people plugged into that space than just academics, which is another weird misconception that I hate, that it's like the only people who care about or read philosophy are people in philosophy departments. It's like, ah, oh, fuck you. Some of us like to read um, and think <laughs> about things. Um, but yeah, it started as a joke that it was like, oh, let's talk about philosophy. And then everyone was looking at each other and it was like, wait. Wait, is this is this is this helping elucidate my thoughts? And all of a sudden, it was like, oh my god, face turns and heel turns actually make so much sense. Oh my god, like it, <laughs> it, it was this radical awakening that uh, dudes slamming each other has made us smart. We're like, thank you, Undertaker. Thank you, Shawn Michaels. That's, That's um, amazing. So Matt, um, providing you don't get drawn into the world of pro wrestling. Uh, <laughs> Drawn back what? into it. I loved that back stuff when I was a kid. Okay. It's been a long time. But, um, Check out Zack Sabre Jr. Oh, yeah. Again, my, now, my just, just from this, this short thing alone, I'm, I'm now very tempted to go and watch some SmackDown. And uh, is that even still a thing? I'm probably going to show my age. It right. is. It's on Good. Friday. Well, there you go. I'll have to go and watch last night's and uh, think about the philosophy of wrestling. <laughs> yeah, check you out Zack Sabre Jr. Spear, a... dude. Yeah, Zack Sabre Jr. is a... Um, Metal-loving anarchist vegan uh, who names his finishing moves after after Stuart Lee bits. Wicked, and, yeah, greatest person alive. Um, really want him on the show. Um, <laughs> so yeah, comes out March tenth. Repeater books. Do go buy it, folks at home. It is very very good. It's really both very smart and also very very lovely. Like it just. As like this touching personal thing that also bridges into this really um, good, rich intellectual space. It's, it's really, really, really good book. Mm, damn right. Oh, thank you very much. That means a lot. Absolutely. Yeah. So to to play everyone out today, um, it, it's a song about love. It's called <laughs> "I Love You," uh, letter I L U V letter U, by a band called Amerta out of Houston, Texas. After album Hyperviolence, uh, I I don't know if I hate this. Uh, this is accelerationism right here. It's it sounds like new metal. It sounds like Mudvayne, but also like rap, like that band Horror. You know, H O nine nine O nine. Um, meets kind of vain and uh, like crappy mole deathcore. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know if I hate this or love it, or if I hate it because I love it. Um, it's yeah, it's all over the place. But um, maybe you'll hate it, maybe you'll love it. Uh, if you hate it, then go listen to uh, the new Violet Cold album, which was what we're going to play. Uh, then we decided to do this instead. We, we wanted to do violence as a way to welcome you back. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good introduction to 2020s energy that we're going to play a song that is just repulsive on every level and uh, is simultaneously corny and threatening. And for some reason, I think that their logo is a parody of Sun's logo. I, I have no idea what's going on here. Maybe they're terrible. Maybe we'll never hear them hear about them again. Uh, but Amerta, out of Houston, Texas. And 
Uh, come back next week. We're going to be talking about the kind of a, a nice little parallel to, to this one. We're going to be talking about the Color Outer Space movie and book and short story, rather, um, with J.G. Michaels from uh, Parallax Views, which is a incredibly good uh, podcast about literally everything, and it's so good. Um, uh, and I believe he works at Zero Books. So, um, yeah, come back next week for that. Uh, go over to the Patreon where we've got a huge reading series on uh, Grant Morrison's The Invisibles. I, I believe he hung out with Mark Fisher at one point, or they knew each other, knew of each other. Um, so more parallels there. He mentions Mark Fisher in some of the notes around The Nameless, which was inspired by Grant Morrison getting really into object-oriented ontology around the same time that literally everyone did. Cool. So, yeah, it, it all ties together. Everything comes together in a big mesh of content. Uh, but here's a murder. I hate them.